So when you get someone subbing in in your pulpit at the last minute, you get what dish is get dished out to you. <laughs> um, so this morning, as we give our attention to the Word of God, I'm will be preaching from Matthew chapter 1. Um, this actually is a text which uh, we'll, we uh, are covering over in Heartland this, this morning itself. Pastor Jonathan preaches there. And especially as we enter into this time in which we, in which we consider God's visitation of His people in Christ, um, this passage is one which invites us and introduces us to who Jesus is, what he came to do, what it means to be his follower. So, our scripture reading this morning, Matthew chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations of Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, fourteen generations and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's join together in prayer. Morning. 
We, O oh Lord, are your people. That which we have read is your word. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, and wills to obey all that you have spoken. And this we ask for Christ's name. Amen. So it's, just, it's okay, we can all admit it and move on. We've been there. We've done that. If there were a t-shirt, we'd have it. So, what am I describing? Just this. You open the first page of the New Testament and you're reading the first verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Or at least you're thinking about it. But then you have a thought that crosses your mind. Do I really need to read this? This whole slew of names that I don't recognize and I can't pronounce half of them? Why didn't, why didn't parents just name their name, their sons Chad or even Norman? Can't I just skip this part and get on with the real story? Now, if you've ever chosen to take that route, you're not alone. Not at all. It's been done before in the past. It will be done again and again. And so far as I know, without one single fatality ever taking place. So that part you don't have to worry about. But you need to know. That decision is based on a big misunderstanding. And the misunderstanding can be stated this way. We think that just like our computer desktop or our laptop or our digital device it belongs in the domain of the experts, the geek squads and everyone else, so this genealogy belongs in the hands of somebody else. Old Testament specialists, or history nerds, or all the like of them. Knowing what kind of a mess we might make, if we try to fix our own digital device, we keep our distance. Not knowing who these people are in the genealogy, not sure about what this genealogy is for, we also keep our distance. It's as if the first 17 verses of Matthew are surrounded by some orange cones and we're not sure what the project is and it seems safer just to steer around it. But that's where the problem lies. Because these words and these names are the story. This genealogy is the author's backstory, setting, plot, and outline. This genealogy is really a condensed version of the author's world. Of this world right up to the point where the hero makes his entrance. Just before the main event begins. Just before the curtain goes up on the stage. And in fact, this genealogy is the stage it's the stage with everything on it and everything in its place. It's the stage occupied by a cast of characters whose place was determined a long time ago. This is how Matthew introduces the reader to Jesus. Who he is. 
what he came to do and what it means to be his follower. And this genealogy is the perfect vehicle to accomplish this purpose. How? Because this makes the sovereignty of God over all human existence visible. It displays God's wisdom and power and glory and steadfast love in a world which to all outward appearances seem to be empty of God's presence. This genealogy shows the evidence of God's calling and promises of God's stewardship bestowed on the kings of Judah, God's judgment in the form of the exile, and God's restoration in advance of the coming of his anointed king. The land of Judah and Israel had known centuries of invasions, wars, the rise and fall of one kingdom after another, each one leaving in its wake an enslaved and a harassed people. The prophet Daniel was actually given a vision of this history as it played out over time. He saw a king with a head of gold, but with a chest of arms, a chest and arms of silver. A king with bronze torso and thighs, but feet of iron and clay. And then into this vision there appeared a stone which struck the entire image broke it into pieces and the pieces disappeared in the wind. What does that mean? <coughs> Daniel gave that interpretation. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. The Gospel of Matthew is the good news of that kingdom. It's the announcement that the curtain is now rising, that the spotlight is shining on the hero who is now center stage. And this Gospel begins with a widescreen, multi-generational picture of the people whose lives were the evidence of God's purpose and promise. They were the flesh and blood connecting rods all the way from Abraham to Jesus. So who were these people? Some were patriarchs, some were kings. Some were good kings, some were bad kings. Some people were well known, others were nobodies. Some were women who seemed to fall outside the lines altogether. What were they doing there? But what they had in common was this. They were placeholders in the hands of a sovereign God. They were not the hero who is to come. But they may wait made way for the king. They were not the reason for God's message of hope, but they were the tangible evidence of that hope. They were sinners whose failures were legendary 
and were an embarrassment. But they were never an embarrassment to the God who saved them. They did not bring God's kingdom to pass, but they were nevertheless citizens of that kingdom. These descriptions are a composite picture of those whose names are recorded here in Matthew 1. So this morning we want to explore this passage and these people together because they provide a pattern by which we ourselves can live and serve God in our time. So let's take a few moments this morning considering what that means. It means that we can see, first of all, a pattern of promise and fulfillment. This genealogy begins with two who received promises, Abraham and David. What was Abraham's promise that he received? I will make you a great nation. I will make you into a great people. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And through you, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. What was the promise that David received? You can read about it in 2 Samuel 7, where God says, After you have gone your way, I will build a house after you. And your son... Your sons shall continue to be kings before me to the end. Theirs will be a kingdom that has no ending. The genealogy is rooted on these two promises to these two people because they are the pattern for what God would do through Jesus. He would be the one who would bless the nations. He would be the king who would sit over a kingdom which would not fail and would not be turned over to another. And therefore, that affects the way that we look, up at, look at our lives as Christians. We are not meant to be the hero of our story. We can't be and we won't be. But we can see who is. We can see and live as those who, with in, and in Christ, we become th those, those winners. We become heroes with Him and not in and, of in and of ourselves. The pattern that we, that we see actually is, is the structure of most of the book of the Psalms. Who are the Psalms written to or for? They're written for God's anointed. Who is God's anointed? In one sense, it was David. But in another sense, they were someone greater than David. They were someone yet to come who would be anointed. And all of us who are, who are Christians, who belong to Christ, are in that anointed one. And we receive that promise, and we live as those who reign with Christ. That's the pattern which 
the, the genealogy sets forth for us that we live by even today. We don't have to save the world. We don't have to save our families. We can't. But we can faithfully point to the one who does. There's a second pattern that this genealogy gives us, and it's the pattern of hope. And this is directly related to what we just talked about, promise and fulfillment. Hope derives from the promise given. Hope derives from the sense of assurance that the one who speaks promises and keeps them can be trusted. Throughout the, throughout the Old Testament, the message of hope that is given is never one about the, about the greatness and goodness of the people of Israel. It's never about them. It's about the greatness and goodness and the faithfulness of God, whom they trust, whom they serve. That is the hope in which they can rest. And of course, we who live in, in in our time, look back to that same promise as we live our lives now. That is the promise which, which gives us a sense of hope in the coming and the, in the return of Jesus Christ in the last day. We live by that promise. We baptize our children in that promise. We share the gospel as that promise. All of those things which are promises represent living by hope for us even now. Living by hope doesn't mean that we, that we think that, that in every day and every way things are always going to get better for us, or that things are always going to be sweet and easy. It'll be all seashells and balloons. It will not be. But we live with, a, with the peace and the assurance that what God has planned, what God has purposed, will be fulfilled. We live by the promise which comes to us in Philippians 1 when Paul says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the end, to the day of Christ. That's the way it's going to work. That is the, what the hope that we have as Christians. Paul reminds us in Romans that, that, um, that all that God has done, that he has, has um, those whom he foreknew, he, he, um, he elected, he chose to be conformed to the image of his son. That was the outcome. That was the promise. That was the thing which we know is coming. A third pattern shows up in this genealogy as well. And it's part of the bleak, it's in a way it's the bleak part of the story. The pattern of sin and shame. It's, part, it's the bad news that hits before the good news. The bad news, of course, was 
that of the human fall of the rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden. That set us all back into the hole of separation from God, of conflict with one another, and enslavement to our own selves. And everything which follows after the fall of the human race in Genesis 3 is the story of how God is going to remove the sin and remove the shame. One of the things that is very clear in, in this genealogy is simply to think about who those people were in there. Abraham tried to pass his wife off as his, his sister. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and, and oversaw the murder of her husband Uriah. The kings of uh, uh, Manasseh and others that are listed in there were the worst kings that Israel knew. You see sin and you see shame throughout all this story. You see women whose lives were less than, than pristine, who were far less than perfect, still being part of this story, all as an example of, of the extent to which God works past the worst of our sins to the praise of his glory. The message of the, 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 the hope of the prophets was always this, that God is at his best when we are at our worst. The message that comes out of, the, of this genealogy was written is that all the time when things are going bad for the people of God, God's grace and promise is going to endure all that. And it looks forward to that, uh, to the message that you find in Hebrews where, where we're told that, that uh, Jesus was not ashamed to call us his brothers. Why? Because he himself would wrap them he himself would be, would clothe them in his own righteousness. He would be the one who would put the sandals back on our feet, the ring back on our finger, the robe around our shoulders, all of which were signs of being sons of the king. There's no level of shame, no level of sin that God cannot reclaim. And all that is built into the genealogy. All that comes out and it was repeated again when Jesus calls people to himself and tells those who objected that I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Finally, there's a pattern of the kingdom that's seen in this, in this genealogy. We said at the outset that Daniel himself was given a vision of this kingdom. 
that at the time in which kings would would take their stands and they would they would war and they would conquer only to be conquered again that in the midst of all that God would set up his own kingdom how would he do it well a stone would crash into this image and out of the stone there would grow a mountain Jesus would tell us in the Gospel of Matthew and explain that the kingdom of God is like the stone which becomes a great mountain. It is like a seed which grows into a great tree. It is like a small uh, amount of, of yeast which leavens the whole lump of dough. It is a picture of gradual work which takes place in ways which we don't always see it happening but it's sure to happen and it will take place the mystery of the kingdom of god as jesus explains it to his disciples is that yes even right now people are going to reject it people are going to look jesus in the eye and reject him and walk away but that does not mean that God's purpose is to defeat it. The anointed king himself will be crucified. But that does not mean that the kingdom fails. The good news that we have in, in the gospel is this, that, that this is a kingdom which will not fail. We are kingdom people whose feet rest on the promises of God, whose steps we take are all on a level, a level playing field, where according to the prophets, um, the mountains and the hills will be shaved down to nothing. Why? So that you walk straight so that you can see the glory of God at work, so that you can know and be assured that in the end, God wins. And when God wins, we win. I don't know where that leaves you this morning. We all walk into this place bearing different difficulties, strains and stresses in life. We may be very aware of a gap between what we think our life should be like and what it is. We may feel discouraged by failures that we made along the way and what we think we should have done, and what we could have done if we just start over. But none of that is needed because God has that in mind. God has taken that into account. We are placeholders right now because the one who has, who will be, who will be all in all, the one at whose feet we will sit in the house of Zion, has put us here to await that day.
to walk toward that goal, to share the good news of that salvation, and to live for that end. So we think about that this morning, and uh, let us take a moment now in uh, our portion of worship in which we meditate, meditate upon the truth, meditate on this one in particular, that God is at his best when we are at our worst. Let's take a moment to reflect on God and his word this morning. 